0: Have you ever been in a more glorious theatre than this one? It is a gorgeous theatre and it's been a few years since we've been in Hobart, so we're very right? thrilled to be back here. And bank that Fleetwood back, by the way, because we'll be talking about something to do with Fleetwood Mac a little bit
1: later. Yeah, we've moved on to a stage where now Lee makes all the music decisions before I even <laughs> arrive in the state where we are. I'm like, no, have we thought about it? She's like, it's yes, all organised, thank you, I've had a word. I booked it in three months ago. Yeah, you really did. Um <laughs> I just wish we'd organised to be in the royal boxes, though. Like, Wouldn't yes. that be good if you were there and I was there and we were just like... <laughs> who gets to be in those boxes? Not get... the Queen anymore.
0: Because right. they were built for her, apparently. Like, never quite made it. Who would be Tasmanian royalty that would ever land in those boxes? Mary! Oh, oh. Mary, of course.
1: <laughs> and has she ever showed up? I mean... Um, Imagine how
0: bizarre it would be to be sitting here for chat 10 and like Mary and Fred. <laughs> <laughs> was like,
1: oh. Hi. hi. Um... <laughs> there go the Mary and Fred gags that we had uh, lined up. Fun fact, I actually covered as a journalist um, the christening of their first child oh yeah i had to go to copenhagen and yeah and it was one of those kind of foreign correspondent challenges where you've got to find aussie flavored stories (laughs) in otherwise completely pointless event and so i went and did a feature on the tassie devils enclosure (laughs) at the copenhagen (laughs) zoo because they've got one
0: Oh, so often when yep. you're a foreign correspondent, you rock up at the most remote things and you'll be like, uh, Were there any Australians? In- any Aussies here? Are there any Aussies? <laughs> it's
1: terrible. Are there any feral kangaroo populations? There's <laughs> one outside parrots that's a hardy annual <laughs> yarn. Well, anyway, look, we're off to topic already. We are. We are. Confirmed. Okay. Hobart Show. We always have charities that we support locally, wherever we are. We do. And um, tonight we have two, so we have the Hobart Women's Shelter, um, which needs no introduction and we have supported in the past um, in Tassie. but we also have a surprise second charity this evening and it is connected to the most chattered story ever, which I, I seek your indulgence to tell now. So many years ago, well not that many, but like this is not a crab run-up like to the <laughs> yeah, like, you see her face just ago. going, wow, many years ago. Jeremy and I took our children on a um, big overseas trip. We took our eldest daughter to see where she was born in London, et cetera, et cetera. Then we went to Rome. Amazing. Our kids had all just now become able to walk and not need a nap and everything, so it was the best holiday. And on one of the later nights that we were in Rome, we had dinner at this restaurant, and the kids were being beautifully behaved, and you know, just doing drawing, and all that sort of stuff, which was lovely, and we were chatting away, and then at the end of the meal, there was a chap at the table next door, who came over and just handed me a little scrap of paper, like a receipt, with a sketch of our family on the back, and it was a really good little picture, and I'm like, what a lovely thing to do. I didn't really chat. He just handed it to me and said, hope you enjoy the rest of your holiday. I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing. And I popped it in my wallet. Never really knew where it had come from or who he was. But then years later, found it again in my wallet. I thought, it's such a lovely thing to do. And the artist's name was sort of almost legible. And so I put it on chat 10. And within 20 minutes,
0: <laughs>
1: seriously, so quickly, somebody had worked out that the artist in question was a guy called Alexander Akenyo who runs Black Swan Books and is one of the world's nicest men. So, (laughs) the postscript to this story is that after he was discovered and we got to talk on the phone and um, it became a fun story in the group, this artist from the ACT did an embroidery... Of the sketch, and sent it to me. <laughs> and tonight, very pleased to say that Alexander Acacio himself is in the audience. And so, <laughs> if he can edge, I think you're close-ish to the edge. Alexander, where are you? Oh, there he is, right in the centre. Oh, right there. in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Jeremy assured me he's quite close to the edge. No, he's not. <laughs> he's right in the middle. Does everybody mind just sort of just letting Alexander kind of? And the actual... I've brought the embroidery as well. Look at it. I mean, sorry, it's not very visible. but um, um, I'll bring it along to the signing afterwards. So yes, that we're doing book signings. We don't always do signings, but we are doing a book and merchandise signing at the end. So, you can If you want to come and
0: meet us and say hello and have a selfie <laughs> and all that.
1: So, this is the first time we've actually met in person. So... Um, <laughs> And I had Alexander's number and we talked a bit, and I'm like, what happened to Tassie? Would you come on stage and talk, tell the story? And you said yes. So, um, would you want to give us your perspective of this madness? Oh,
2: look, it was, a, it was such a beautiful night. Rome is such a beautiful city, and <laughs> I was sitting there with my wife, and we were just enjoying the evening. And as you said, I saw this beautiful family, and you know, when you're overseas and you hear a. You hear an accent, and it's an Australian accent, and you go, oh, you know, because we, and we just come from Cairo, and that was hectic, and then we'd been um, travelling all around uh, Italy, and we were in Rome, and you know, you just, I guess, something really clicks, and that is that connectedness, which I've since found out is a big chatter thing, yeah. <laughs> and um, and yeah, so I did a little sketch, and yeah, did you know?
0: Did you know it was Annabelle Crabb? Well,
2: no, I didn't. No, I didn't. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, I've even read your, you know, your books about Malcolm Turnbull, and <laughs>
1: oh man, oh, that is the sickest burn. <laughs> that child, I mean, she was well behaved that night, but man, has she got a horrific turn of cruelty about her. Okay, guys, I do not talk about Malcolm Turnbull in my home. I don't. I really don't.
2: Um, but uh, yes, it, w- it was such a beautiful little scene. But no, I, I hadn't. I, you know, I'm a book reader. I don't watch television, and I, I have a bookshop. I'm, I'm attached to those objects as storytellers. So I'd read. I'd read both of your work, and certainly your political political um, journalism, and so, no, I'd never seen, I'd never seen your face. And then it's such a, <laughs> and it's so distinctive. As you <laughs> and, and, and
1: the glasses really come through, yeah. But anyway, it was the most, it was actually the most beautiful series of coincidences and it's been so nice to get to know you and your bookshop which obviously has a giant chatter community attached to it and that is the long way round to me saying that the other charity for night is is derwent valley arts which is um (laughs) which alexander's associated with so just give us a quick hot blast of what this organization does
2: so we run um, an organisation in the Derwent Valley called Derwent Valley Arts, and we basically bring a lot of regional arts and cultural um, arts opportunities to people that m- maybe don't even travel into Hobart, but certainly we, we're very connected to the primary schools there and the and the single high school, and we just love getting what I know everybody in the room thinks is so important about the very sort of essence of living life. Um, to those, to those kids. So we, we put on exhibitions and we put on competitions and we bring Festival of Voices and the TSO and we're sort of that conduit to bring those beautiful, rich experiences to people. Yeah. So And so thank you so much because Annabelle texted me and said, you know, do can you think of a charity? And I, <laughs> and I was like, yes, yes! <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so wonderful. And just another thing I wanted to say about the... Um, about uh, the the bookshop is after that um, that uh, Instagram or or what are you on Facebook or what's how do, how do the chatters communicate? Isn't that adorable? it's like yeah.
1: I'm a book person. I'm not aware of television or the or the intertubes thing. What is the thing that you're on? It's sort of basically think of it as two tin cans with a a sort of string in between. Keep going.
2: Um, is Alexander,
1: have you seen one of these before? <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, is there's been this really beautiful stream of chatters <laughs> who come into the shop and say, oh, "We're a chatter," and or, "We're a chatterati," and and, and you're also sort of beautiful and and just sort of my people. And I, I guess that's just knowing the sort of community. And I've got a friend here, Anika Boulanger Mashberg, who who said, yeah, <laughs> Where she is. And she said, Oh, okay, you should listen. She was explaining what you do. You now you need to listen to the, this. And she, I think she gave me a podcast episode list. And I had to listen to this one, this one. But don't listen to this one first. Listen to this one. And then she, in the end, she said, No, you have to go back to the first one. And then you have to listen all the way through to really get it. So, feel, so what I, an incredible. I feel community. like I need to
0: go, um, Alexander Lee Sales, former host of 730 Report. <laughs>
1: people. Thank you. (laughs) 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 And 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 also a giant thank you to Dorothy Craft who did the most beautiful job of reproducing that sketch in embroidery which is out chatting even chatters I think and it actually like arrived at my house at a time when I was very sad and that gave me a lot of joy, so thank there's you all. F- there's a few other quite good chatter stories in
0: the audience tonight too that have come to our attention via social media. One was Lewis Jaffray who drove four hours today. He said he thinks he might be the only um, 19-year-old male in the audience. None of <laughs> none of his other 19-year-old. <laughs> none of his other 19-year-old friends wanted to come, so his gran agreed to come. She's never heard an episode before. So, hello, gran. Gran, I hope it's going okay. (laughs) There there was somebody else here who'd never heard an episode before today, which is my friend Bryce, who is my children's old school principal. His mum, Chris, is with him tonight. Listened to her first episode this afternoon, already apparently calling herself a chatter. (laughs) Bryce made me laugh heavily when we were standing in the wings because we were texting... I mean, I hate to disavow people that I'm not in the wings kind of getting method <laughs> So I'm about to go <laughs> texting my mate in the audience. And um, we were talking about, I saw this hilarious little Facebook video pop up this week about if teachers ran workplaces and it was all the little teacher tropes. And one of the ones <laughs> that really made me laugh was a workplace meeting around a table where people were kind of chatting a bit too much and the boss stood up and went... And then all the staff did it. And so when we were in the wings, I said to Bryce, we're just waiting for clearance to go. And he said, Do you need me to stand up and
1: go? How did he notate that in text format? Like, how does. He said, clap, Do you need clap, me to clap, do that? I think
0: he said the teacher clapping or whatever. Oh, yeah, and okay, so we clap. just kind of knew what it was. Then there's another mob, the Luscious Ladies Literary Book Club. Give us a yell, ladies. Yeah. <laughs> They've flown in from Melbourne. They've been a book club for 20 years. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and also Toban, who sent us a lovely message. It's her first night out since becoming a mum. Oh, oh so lots of lovely um, chatter kind of stories. Um, self, stage selfie. We've got to oh. take... Do you know what All we right. were saying out the back? We never have remembered to do a selfie of ourselves with the audience in the background. And so we wrote, I've written on the list with a big star, on-stage yeah. photo with audience. This is like, it, over. This is
1: grotesquely C- kind of megalomaniacal of us, it. but it's going to happen. Crab has
0: uh, Crab has to do it because I'm a terrible, despite having go-go gadget arms,
1: I am a really bad selfie yeah, taker. I'm so short and then somehow I always have to yeah. be the one that does it and then it's okay. my fault and doesn't look good. But anyway, okay. um, what about if we do one when everybody smiles and then one where everybody's just like checking their watches and kind of <laughs> going like. <laughs> right. Okay, smiling first. Okay. All right. This is just the most lovely, lovely, beautiful <laughs> theatre. And I. Just it's
0: nice actually when the house lights are up and you feel like you can see everybody.
1: It's great. Um, but then we can see people that are falling asleep. Yeah, as that's well. true.
0: That's all right. Okay, finally, <laughs> the business end. We get to the reason we're opening with Fleetwood Mac, and that's because both of us recently read Daisy Jones and the Six. Have lots of people read it? Yeah. So I, when I was reading it, I was thinking, okay, this is basically Fleetwood Mac. The so the book is. How early did you start thinking this is Fleetwood Fleetwood Mac? Because as soon as they described Daisy Jones, I was like this is Stevie Nicks. So, but then okay, so the book is basically set in the nineteen seventies. It's a um, kind of a merging of a couple of different rock bands that come together and this one woman who's got this kind of amazing kind of stage presence called Daisy Jones and they kind of morph into a a group and then there's some kind of love messiness within the group. Love messiness. (laughs) There's a, a female keyboard player um, who's in a relationship with one of the other band members, and so it kind but of secretly it has yeah secretly, but it has lots of for anyone that knows much about Fleetwood Mac it has echoes of Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham and Christine McVie and John McVie and and so forth, and Daisy Jones has a kind of very messy drug habit like Stevie Nicks and so forth, but then when I f- and, and it's a great it, we both kind of read it on holidays. I have finished it on holidays and then handed it to Crab, who
1: started at the tail end of a holiday and then um, ripped through it. She is coquettishly failing to mention that we were at the Ubud Writers Festival, which <laughs> it was is great. the greatest 50th birthday gift that we gave ourselves this yes. year, which is to finally go to that. We've been invited yes. a bunch of times that we just went, do you know what? We're <laughs> go to that. Yeah. And we're not taking any children. <laughs> They're amazingly pleased about that, as you can
0: imagine. <laughs> so, we sloped off there for five or six days, which was incredible. So, lots of pool time rating. And so, Daisy Jones and the Six, it's written like, I don't know if anyone has ever read any of those great oral histories that Vanity Fair does. There was one that I loved about the Sopranos a few years back, and they... ...kind of interview everyone involved and they piece it together like a narrative. And so you're I getting, love it. It's such
1: a good format. It's a great
0: format. And so you're getting the different takes of how everyone viewed what was going on. And so Daisy Jones and the Six is written like that. So it's kind of present day with people looking back to the era when their band was gigantic. Um, you can't put it down. It's very pacey and and easy kind of holiday read. And so then, of course, because you know I'm me, I, I went straight into the deep dive of Fleetwood Mac to check like how close is it to Fleetwood Mac. It's actually not that close to Fleetwood Mac. <laughs>
1: I'm just, Sorry. I'm really, a tiny part of me is hoping that you have drawn some sort of chart that measures the intersections <laughs> and the inconsistencies. I mean, and I here think, is the not As soon as we mention this, <laughs> someone will actually bloody do it in the, in the chatter group. But um, no, okay.
0: it, it's clearly inspired by Fleetwood Mac, but it it's, was different enough that I felt like, oh, yeah, they've gone and they've just grabbed, the author's gone and grabbed kind of elements of 70s, you know, rock bands, Fleetwood Mac being one of them, um, and kind of gone from there. Then I watched this doco on Amazon Prime um, about Fleetwood Mac. I
1: don't recommend it. (laughs) So, let let me just get this clear. Your thought process is, oh, this is interesting. I like this novel. It's pretty much Fleetwood Mac, isn't it? Oh, no, it isn't. Nevertheless, I shall... (laughs) Exactly.
0: The doco, clearly they didn't get the rights to the songs and they don't have any of the band members of Fleetwood Mac. (laughs) So, me features in it. I've (laughs) recently
1: done an internet dive on Fleetwood Mac. Let me give you my
0: views. I did. It did tell me one interesting bit of trivia, which is that Fleetwood Mac has changed lineup fourteen times. Wow! Including with Neil Finn for a period of time. That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, I saw Fleetwood Mac in Sydney wow. a couple of years back, and um, look, I mean, I'm not a like massive Fleetwood Mac fan. I mean, Jeremy booked those tickets, as you right. can imagine. Um, I was just really worried because I've never been in a room with that much flammable floaty clothing. <laughs> Oh, uh, totally. And I just thought, I genuinely thought this is a fire risk because I, there's yeah. so many ladies with caftan sort of flowy 100%. things on. Them. I'm like, man, if somebody like, lights a funny cigarette in this building, I went we're to, all doomed. I
0: went to see Stevie Nicks in the Hunter Valley and it was shocking how many people were dressed kind of like, with hats and like floaty cheeseclothy kind of skirts and stuff. It was, yeah, it was really... It was like coming to one of these shows and seeing all the little Annabelle crabs.
1: <laughs> 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 wow. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that time that we were speaking both at the same conference somewhere and I turned up and you were dressed as me? It was like really like you had this kind of like... like
0: Yeah, I just had worn like a flary skirt and a cardigan and I, as I got dressed I was like, oh, the full... <laughs> 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 not not in that there was a bad look. It was that it was a single white female vibe. And so I kind of went, oh, no, I'm going to go downstairs and she's going to go, you psycho, what are you doing? Which she did. <laughs> now, but you've watched the TV
1: adaptation of Daisy I Jones. I have. And, you know, I mean, I'm never that optimistic about TV adaptations of pretty much anything, but it's really good. I kind of, I mean, it's it's a kind of... You know, rollicky, rock and roll kind of um, intrigue sort of thing. Anyone famous in it? Or? Um, you were going to ask that. Because I, I feel like prepare. Daisy Jones
0: gives me Sienna Miller well, vibes, but maybe yeah. Sienna Miller's too old.
1: Enough. No, 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 no. It's, it's, there's nobody I recognised in it. Um, and also the guy who plays Billy, who's the sort of lead singer and songwriter who has this sort of tumultuous kind of emotional affair with Daisy Jones while still... Um, being faithful to his absolutely lovely wife and also being sober, um, is he looks more like Jesus every episode. That the epi- yeah, And there's lots of sort of back and forth and here's an interview when he's older and then one back when he's, you know, these are uh, contemporaneous events. Anyway, that's my only... Somebody who looked like Jesus is in it. That's as much as I can help you with. But it is actually... Pretty good TV and the thing that I actually thought and I really enjoyed more than I thought I would that execution of the novel as essentially a series of interview observations and it's not like chapter by chapter, it's paragraph by paragraph sometimes, is that it kind of reminded me a tiny bit of that Beckham documentary. It's so weird Ah. like where because a lot of the um, elegance of the Beckham documentary and you know. David Beckham is not a person in whom I'm massively interested, but, like, I liked the way that doco was made, was they inserted a lot of comedy just with the juxtaposition of people's very confident statements that contradicted each other. Yeah. I just love that. Like, That's always
0: great. I love it? a bit of
1: um, creative – not creative editing, just, like, intuitive placement yeah. that gives you more insight into – the relationship than you might otherwise have had. Sales.
0: I felt like I dazzled in that Hobart show, Crab. The Hobart show was the worst one of Sales'
1: career. Yeah. Like that Exactly. Kind of yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. And I remember, okay. like, it works in politics too. I remember in the killing season, one of the most interesting little um, segments was in the lead-up to um, Julia Gillard challenging Kevin Rudd for the um, Labor leadership, There's all these meetings, and this is what you get in politics all the time, where you can interview everybody who is in the room and some of them will have entirely diametrically opposed accounts of what happened. Court as well. Court reporting, same. Right? And it's it's so interesting. And the reason why that happens is often at the time of these sorts of contests, you've got people from different factional backgrounds or different factional leaders coming together to kind of like nut some deal out. And what will happen is they'll have the discussion and then they'll both each go back to their own buddies and tell them a slightly more self-flattering version of the interaction. Oh, I absolutely ripped that guy a new one and <laughs> I, I said, absolutely, we're not doing that. And so that's when the versions start to change and then after a while, it just settles in in their heads that that's how it happened. I
0: think even earlier in the process than that, it can take root, which is, I think there can be a situation in which two people or multiple people are offering quite different versions of the same event and neither of them may be lying because their interpretation of, oh, Crab looked cross when I said that or, and so then you say, oh, Crab crab seemed kind of cranky when I said blah, 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 and then – but you weren't at all. You were just thinking, um, you know, what am I talking about next or whatever. And so it's – I think that even just all those little micro ways of reading body
1: language come into play. Even what you take out of a, um, a conversation because if there's something that you really want and you hear the other person saying, yeah. oh, well, we can think about that – then you go, oh, she was open she, to She's X. doing it, yeah. Well, she's definitely doing X. And then you go back to your supporters, you <laughs> know, I've got an absolute rolled gold commitment that <laughs> totally. she do X. So, the oral
0: history thing and, and also the kind of front woman thing brings me to the next thing I'm really dying to talk about, which is Britney Spears' memoir, The Woman in Me, which I have knocked off in the past week. Um, so, I listened... I, I'm not, as we know, a great lover of audiobooks but I listen to the audiobook of this one on someone's recommendation and I do love a celebrity audio memoir audiobook. Yes, book. you do. Normally because I like the celebrity themselves reading their own story. In the Britney Spears case, it's Michelle Williams, the actor, who reads it. So, Britney reads like a kind of very brief introduction and then it's Michelle Williams and so it's a really, really good read because um, it's such a you know strong actor who's um, doing it. So, the overall, my overall thoughts are, it it was really, really interesting and I couldn't wait to get back to hearing it. It left me with a lot of questions and there seemed to be some contradictions in it, which I often think is a mark of a good read and an interesting story as well, right, because it's not so clear-cut. You're left kind of going, well, but but hang on, what about, you know, blah, blah, blah. Also, I think it's kind of easy to forget because, you know, just recency bias, just Oh my God! I just Britney Spears was so huge, and the kind of there was a lot of really iconic moments like the snake at the VMAs or whatever music awards they were when she did that number with that giant snake draped around it. The double denim with Justin Timberlake at that awards show that they did. The Madonna kiss. The music video for um, um, "Baby One More Time." Uh, the music video for "Toxic." Like I mean, and just so many some just absolute bangers among all of the songs. So. I think she was kind of possibly the last or one of the last of the rock stars whose image was entirely defined by people outside her own control because it was pre-social media. So, she was still heavily, the way she was portrayed, was heavily dependent on media,
1: you know, and so forth. Um, Like that famous Rolling Stone cover um, where she's in her bedroom with sort of hardly anything on. I remember hearing hearing a... um, ...an interview with her mum who was like, well, I was out of the room and... Yeah. yeah.
0: So, the kind of, I think... I was kind of left with the feeling by the end that... ...as almost is always the case with memoirs... ...and, you know, Clive James stole the best title ever, Unreliable Memoirs that she's a bit of an unreliable narrator because you're getting it from one person's perspective and that's fine and I'm interested in Britney Spears' perspective but I was kind of left feeling like, I just feel like I'm not getting quite the full story here because I keep having questions about various things. The stuff I think that's indisputable is, um, she goes into great detail about the conservatorship where her father took over basically the rights to everything to do with her life and that's kind of shocking to hear her perspective and take on that which the world became kind of more aware of I think towards the end of it when it was then overturned but things like she talks about at a certain point is of there, father, are we under attack yeah. that I assume it's the hospital is it oh yeah. I see it's, yeah. it's birds. Med- okay. medical, good, medical good. chopper oh, that's
1: fine everything's fine <laughs> yeah, that's right it's
0: completely fine be okay person in the chopper um so, she um, talks about, for example, her father would say, uh, you know, you can't have dessert. And she would think in her own head, if I go and get some, is that actually illegal, right? Because her father had such a level of control. And so, you're kind of hearing it thinking, geez, it was truly extraordinary that her father was granted that role, not a more independent kind of person. Um, and then, so, so, all of that kind of things is... is all of that side of it is horrifying. But then also there's a lot of skimming over of her own... She kind of admits... There's a, She says a lot. The form of words is used a lot. Well, I will admit to blah, 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 blah. The only thing she really admits to having an issue with is Adderall. She doesn't she admit to any other drug use-taking problems. Um, she admits she was un, had mental health issues and so forth. But you kind of left feeling like I'm not kind of quite sure... Something very serious must have been going on because a court ruled that you couldn't, you know, kind of have your kids and your father was given full control of your estate and so forth. And I felt like I didn't really get to the bottom of that. And what it made me wish for, but I think this was influenced by having just read Daisy Jones and the Six, was an oral history where you could hear from her and Justin Timberlake and Kevin Federline and her mother and her father and her sister and her agent and like the whole picture of people. Again, I think it's indisputable that she was surrounded by terrible people who were not... You just wonder who was actually the advocate for Britney Spears because her mother was writing her own book, you know, years ago when she was really unwell. And so as a kind of person that's not in that celebrity world, you're just like,
1: God, you know, how was how no one kind of in your corner here advocating for you? Well, I guess, I mean, I always think that it's analogous to think about, um, you know, young sports stars that are incredibly... Um, able and marketable and sort of the flavour of the month and a lot of people have a vested interest in yeah. that that kid doing well being pushed you know yeah um, and I think that that happens sometimes with young artists as well and. You know, she was a kiddie kitty kitty oh, so right? young.
0: Yeah, she she was from childhood, you know, Mickey Mouse Club and the whole works. I mean she she points out, which is a completely valid point, that after her father's been given full control of everything to do with her life very rapidly she's sent out on tour and she's saying, right, so I'm capable of doing, you know, eight shows a week or whatever it is that she's doing. I think she's doing a Vegas residency but I'm not capable of having any control over my own, say, over my own life, my own decision making. And of course a lot of people got very rich off you know, she's very rich too, but a lot of other people got very rich off her. But then, I say, so a bit like Fleetwood Mac, I was like oh, okay, let me just go and have a look at your Instagram and this was one of the things that Oh, don't do that mate. <laughs> This contributed to my sense that, oh, I've got an unreliable narrator here because the voice of the book bore next to no resemblance to the voice of the Instagram, which I presume she's doing her own Instagram. And so that left me, again, with a bit of an unsettled feeling about it. But but nonetheless, it was super interesting. Did you get that? So was it well written? Like, did you... Yeah, there was a ghostwriter. But interestingly, the ghostwriter hasn't been publicly declared, but there's articles about it's believed to be XYZ person as a man. So I don't know if because they've clearly... The structure of the book and the kind of theme of the book is clearly making a play for the Me Too crowd in that um, I'm a woman who was a strong woman who was kind of, you know, treated badly because I'm a woman and the book's called The Woman in Me. And so maybe I I thought to myself, well, maybe they didn't want it known that it was a male ghostwriter, if that is in fact accurate, which I don't know if it is or not. Um, Maybe they didn't want to... I mean, obviously, when you have a ghostwriter, you know, people prefer the book to be known as their work rather than that it was actually written by somebody else. Yeah. But it is a good piece of work. It's kind of... um, It gets a little repetitive, but in a way that I felt was understandable and kind of um, authentic in that... She was under this conservatorship for 13 years and so obviously that becomes kind of boring, right? Because she can't do anything. She's so restricted in being able to leave the house or make her own decisions that that the first part of it when she's kind of just freewheeling and having a life is very interesting and amazing and then there's 13 years of where there's not a great deal
1: happening. And so, and also, but a huge amount of international attention, particularly on social media, about like exactly what's happening inside that mansion,
0: which only really started towards the end of of her, you know, kind of thing. But yeah, it's it's sort of you do wonder, like, in an age of if she had been say ten years later and had more control of her own image because of social media, how things might have played out differently. She clearly, like a lot of people that become famous very young, has this. sort of difficult relationship where she hates the invasion of her privacy but also almost craves the attention at the same time? Because it seems kind of normal, right? Because if you're used to it... Yeah, the Instagram
1: feed is not a, you know, I want my privacy feed. It's absolutely not, Um, But did you get, when you were reading it, um, and we'll we'll get off Britney Spears in a minute, but but, um, did you get that same feeling that I get when I read the thoughts of... um, um, my gosh, help me out, intern Clinton, Monica Lewinsky. Oh, yeah. Monica Lewinsky. Or watching the Amy Winehouse documentary where you're thinking, wow, this is a young woman who became intensely famous and intensely judged and we were all kind of sitting around and being a part of it without ever really kind feeling... Kind Yeah. Kind of. Because I find that really awkward, you know. I, I was...
0: I it, it gives you... I think when you read any... You know, or see an interview, or read anything with a celebrity, you get that sense of oh, they're an actual person, you know. But, and Britney Spears makes the point that from such a young age, and, and you know, she was a part of it too, and wanted to be sexualized. She was very sexualized, so of course, you viewed as kind of an object in that sense. So she, from a really young age, was being ogled all the time and kind of judged in a in a very objectified kind of way. But then there
1: was this whole thing about remaining a virgin and that became this weird thing that it was sort of okay to ask her about when she was like a you know so still sticking with the virginity
0: thing like she and she points out that like she lost in the book she says she lost her virginity at 14 and then she was like but then there was this public image of me you know and so that was she found that really awkward um, to kind of handle it's very interesting I mean it makes you kind of think geez you know you'd hate your child to be famous at a young kind of age because it's
1: just it, on that sort of scale. Unless you'd spent years and years and years trying to bring that situation about.
0: Well, exactly. I mean, that's the interesting thing that she craved it herself, right? So it's that... Yeah, it, that that's what makes it so interesting. It's like that, you know, be careful what you wish for kind of vibe. No, I mean her parents as well, like, you know. She was driving yeah. it though really, more yeah. so, as a young child more so than her parents. Like she was real, she loved it. She loved singing. She loved the whole vibe. She was clearly very good. I mean, when you watch some of the cuz of course I went onto the YouTube straight oh, away. Oh, the deep dive <laughs> happened. Yeah. When you watch some of the like early Britney Spears like appearances in concerts and um, you know, videos and music awards shows. I mean, there's this clip she does this thing with Michael Jackson where they sing The Way You Make Me Feel and she's just like strutting around on the stage. She's just, she's an incredible dancer and you just look at her and go, yeah, I can see why you're a global superstar. You're absolutely amazing.
1: I like to think of you kind of, I feel like, You need to have like a little scamulator machine, like a Wallace (laughs) and Gromit type machine (laughs) when you go into deep dive mode where you're like, right, well, I've read this Vanity Fair (laughs) article about Britney Spears and now I'm going to go read the memoir and I'm going (laughs) to then do a am just going to cross-check
0: that claim against the mother's Uh, memoir. and
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I
0: know. Get out of the whiteboard. What can you believe? But, yeah, very enjoyable
1: left me wondering, am I being, is it a bit unreliable? Wasn't sure. Possibly, I, I um, I've officially, what is known is that this is the most Britney Spears content we have ever had <laughs> in any conversation, and I'm so here for that.
0: I honestly don't know why. As our Going out, song, we didn't pick a Britney Spears.
1: What, didn't we? I mean, no, well, no. no. Should we, Actually, oh, look,
0: look if, if we can change
1: it to be toxic. Baby one more time or toxic? Yeah, can we have toxic, please? As okay. our Is that going off easy? Okay, Is that possible? let's Okay. So, I haven't watched all these things, but you know how sometimes you sort of have a look and see what new docos or things um, are available? There's this total rash of dudes at the moment like there's a Schwarzenegger one I mean I think that's getting a bit old but like there's a Sylvester Stallone one which seems to feature like all of these Quentin Tarantino types there's a Robbie Williams one is Robbie Williams that interesting I don't know I started watching his it's eh. Kinda okay. <laughs> yeah kind of okay I don't know anyway they're really having a moment aren't they these <laughs> yeah. chaps but um I, we won't go into that because I've read some books okay hearing. yeah I mean...
0: Now for the highbrow content of the evening. <laughs> Stick with me, people.
1: <laughs> this is going to be enlightening. Come um, on. Oh, stop it! <laughs> oh, my God, that child. <laughs> Sorry, the background to this is that um, last Halloween, my daughter, who was then nine and is now ten, um, her Halloween outfit, which she hilariously arranged behind my back with uh, my partner, her father... Um, she dressed as the mummy, but it was like as me, um, and she had a wig like of curly long brown hair, and then bought some red glasses, <laughs> and she strutted around impersonating me, <laughs> and it's actually a bit unnerving. But her impersonation of me, which I took a quick video of and I put it on Instagram because it was funny and because you can't really recognise her. But then it went completely crazy because it's very cruel. It's so accurate. It's very cruel. And she's, you know, (laughs) strutting around going, Oh, did you hear about that old Malcolm Turnbull? I mean, you know, he's like, Oh, yes, yes. Which I do not do. I do not chew my glasses. And then she's going... Oh, I read a new book the other day. It's called Vegetables. Yes, <laughs> very good. It's very good. That was the
0: perfect also oral history moment where we both said at the same time, Crab said, my daughter did this impersonation. It was very
1: cruel. And I said at the exact same moment, it was so accurate. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so um, for Gran, that was the background to these constant people chewing their glasses and people thinking that's funny, that's... My daughter's done that to me. Um, Books, right, so books. I am pages from finishing and finding very gripping a book by a Tasmanian born writer called Francesca Haig. (laughs) Right, and we got this book because I don't, she lives in London, I think, now. Um, Can I confirm that with you, Haig fans? Yeah. Um, And, oh, she's back in Australia. Lives in Melbourne now, right? Oh, that is how we got copies at our Melbourne show because I got a little bag dropped off with two copies of this book, and I'm like, oh, that looks pretty great, and um, it is a terrific piece of work. So the book uh, is called um, I know what it's called. It's called the Cookbook of Common Prayer, and look. It's got some tough subject matter because it's about a family living in um, Hobart and the elder brother is on a kind of gap year in the UK and he dies in an accident, a caving accident. And his younger sister has been in hospital for three years. She's anorexic and she is just clinging to life, really. And it's a real crisis situation. And then there's a younger brother. and called Teddy and a grandfather who Teddy has got a lovely close relationship with. And because the daughter is in such a parlous state, she's so hovering on the edge, the parents decide that they won't tell her what's happened to the older brother. It's, I mean, yeah. It's extraordinary, like concept um, and it is so sensitively executed, and in particular, the depiction of the little boy, the young boy, is so beautifully written. Now, not unlike old Daisy Jones, this novel is written from the viewpoint of the mum, the dad, uh, the sister, the little boy, and the friend. There's another voice in there, I can't remember whose it is. and so you're going through their testimony, basically. And so you get that sense of the differing perspectives. The girl has a secret. You're not sure quite what's happened with her. But she's holding on to it. And then the little boy is trying to find out you know, what is making her um, give up on life to, to the extent that she has. Anyway, um, I really admire writers who can write children... ...without i would capture an essence of childish thinking without being super yeah. twee. It's really, really hard to do and she's done a really great job of it. So, look, I mean, it's strayed close to some stuff for me that, you know, is quite um, close. It's emotional. But her depiction of grief is really convincing as well. Um, anyway, so, like... It may stir up some things if you read the book, but it is um, a terrific, terrific piece of writing, and um, I am really glued to it. Good
0: And you've read another Tassie
1: book too, I think. Well, look, I mean, it's a cheat Tassie book. Um, it's a, it's by Megan Rogers, and it's called *The Heart Is a Star*. She's not a Tassie writer, but it's oh. set um, it's set um, la- significantly in Tassie. So. And the storyline is, is a woman who's got a couple kids, a grumpy husband. She's a bit; they're all a bit sick of the marriage. She's having an affair with a, a, an artist, and she's got this incredibly clingy mum who is a catastrophist, and periodically, and lives in Tassie, and periodically rings her up and says, "I'm ending it all," and then she's got to fly to Tassie and kind of oh. sort it all out, and. Actually, there's something weird going on in the history of this family, where the dad died and um, the mum is blamed by her daughters for the dad's death. But there's more to the story. Anyway, it's it's kind of very twisty and kind of dark and compelling. So, what's, what's
0: it called? Sorry, it right? it's called
1: "The Heart Is a Star", a star. Right. Okay. by Megan Rogers. I just
0: realised. Um, I should have read Bloody Richard Flanagan's book before I came down here. Oh God! <laughs> He's sitting on my bedside table.
1: What a hideous blunder! <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't I don't know, know. Is that because
1: you're like, well, crabs? Crabs read. Uh, I know. I just but I said you read who
0: book. I just suddenly went Oh god there's a, there's a kind of oddly
1: famous one who's just down the road. Look, I mean Flanagan can take the punch. Well, I mean I like, mean, you know, yeah, I mean. That's true. He's just, you know, he's famous enough and you can he can just wait for you to read that book. <laughs> Speaking of <laughs> I tell I'm you what, um <laughs> he did a terrific terrific closing address at the Sydney Writers Festival this year. Very very powerful piece of writing and um I think it's online. Is it, can you
0: listen to it or is it, sometimes they post addresses. I
1: suspect it probably would be actually at the Sydney Writers Festival website. They post um, uh, those addresses and it would be great to listen to as a podcast. It's, um, yeah. Speaking of um,
0: famous writers, I, again, when we are on holiday, read a book that, partly because I just had never read anything from this author um, and I thought, all right, if I'm going to start with one, I'll start with the most famous. So, um, Haruki Murakami, Norwegian Wood. It's only eight oh, million years old. Oh, she made
1: such a display <laughs> of like, oh, I'm just reading Murakami. Allow just me to sit like, by like, the pool oh, with just my play. Murakami. No, just, <laughs> no. Actually, that is not true. She did not do that even once. Um, so,
0: Oh, man, it was... Famous books obviously are often famous for a reason because they're super good or they hit a kind of thing. And I actually learned something reading this book um, which was a form of genre that I had never heard of before which was a German word called Bildungsroman. Has anyone else heard of this?
1: I love how you said
0: that. Okay, so it was just me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This genre horror. Has anyone heard? you <laughs> <laughs> like Alexander. This thing, Facebook, do you know it? Okay. The uh, <laughs> television. So it kind that of means... cathode ray tube.
0: <laughs> People t- sometimes refer to it as like a coming of age thing but that, that's not kind of strictly accurate. It's more like a reflection of a kind of moment in your life that helped you become the person you are because it's a thing to do with um, a journey, which is often about kind of self-discovery or your own identity. It perhaps involves loss, and then there's a form of maturity that's reached through this journey. So, um, you know... Jane Eyre, Harry Potter, um, those kind of books. Uh, and, and often it might be like that someone's you know reflecting back to a period um, in their life, Huckleberry Finn, things of that nature. So Norwegian Wood is a guy is on a plane that's about to land. I think it's actually landing in Germany. It's landing somewhere in Europe. He's in his kind of late 30s, about to be 40, and over the plane audio thing comes an orchestral version of the Beatles song Norwegian Wood. And it throws him back into thinking these really overwhelming feelings that the hostie actually asks you all right because he's thinking back to a girl that he loved when he was in his late teens early 20s and then the story goes back to that kind of period in his life Um, and so his name's Toru Watanabe and then he is in love with this woman called um, Naoko who is this, I'm, it's not, this isn't a spoiler because it happens very early in the book. His kind of best friend from primary school and through his life kills himself and his girlfriend is Naoko. And so Toru and um, Naoko haven't been really that close but they become close in the aftermath of this death and he ends up falling in love with Naoko. Naoko has lots of issues and she ends up in a kind of mental asylum in the country outside of Kyoto while he's living his life in Tokyo as a university student. And so they're not really having a relationship, although he really wants one because he's really in love with her. And then he's friends with this girl at, at college called Midori, who is kind of the exact opposite to Naoko. So Naoko is this kind of troubled, internal, um, frail kind of person. And Midori's this brash, life of the party kind of woman, and he kind of says to Midori, I can't be anything more than friends with you because I'm in love with this, you know, other woman who he doesn't really want to talk to Midori about. So, he goes um, down to visit Naoko in um, where the mental, it's kind of an asylum, I guess, is, and it's in a kind of forested area. And so... That's the kind of basis of the novel. It's heavily actually dialogue driven, but it's very also, you get a real sense of place with it, and it feels almost slightly, it's got a dreamlike quality to it, and I don't know why, but it just has this surreal dreamlike quality to it. It's beautiful writing. It's obviously, I've read it clearly in a translation, since I don't read Japanese, you'll be surprised to know. Um, but it was, the translation was incredible. Um, it's, then I got this afternoon, actually, funnily enough, thinking about... And the thing that sparked off this thinking was thinking about the song Norwegian Wood. Because clearly, that's it's a key part of it because it's Naoko's favourite song and the woman she's living with in the asylum can play the guitar really well and she likes playing Norwegian Wood on the guitar. And I kind of felt like, oh, all right, so Norwegian was just sort of incidental to the, to the thing. And then I was thinking this afternoon, thinking... Norwegian Wood, the song, I reckon, has a dreamlike kind of surreal quality to it. Like, you know, she she um you know, whatever the lyric. I is, looked
1: around and there wasn't a chair. Yeah. yeah.
0: She she told me she, I could sit anywhere. I looked around and I noticed there wasn't a chair. And um all of that kind it just has that real kind of weird vibe. How did you know I was gonna say that lyric?
1: <laughs> that was so That's the most trippy kind of yeah. lyric in the song,
0: I guess. I don't know. And then also the 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 first line, obviously, um, I once had a girl, or should I say she once had me, which was kind of like the vibe of the book. And then it was like... So Norwegian Wood has got kind of the two parts. So, like, I once met a girl. And then it's got... she. (laughs) So, the first bit... Welcome to Lee Sales' Shower Conversations. The first part of it that is in a major key, and then it starts in D, and then when it gets to the middle eight, it goes to the minor of that, it goes to D minor. And I was like, shit, that's like the two women, that's like Midori and Naoko. So then I thought, maybe he is actually... I just thought there was a glancing reference to the song as a device to explode. And then I thought, maybe he's actually... Now I need to go and Google that, because I want (laughs) to (laughs) know... I want to know, is he actually... Get out the scamulator! (laughs) (laughs) Deep research is required! Anyway, it really, really, I mean... It's really stayed with me, that book. It was deeply, deeply um, affecting. And it it just, sorry, I know I'm banging on, but it it just related so much to another thing that I saw, which is in this same genre, (laughs) (laughs)
1: Bildungsroman. You have to keep putting your glasses on to go, what is this (laughs) (laughs) Bildungsroman? (laughs) Bildungsroman. Stop Um, it. Has anyone seen Past Lives?
0: Oh, my God. Have you seen that yet? I haven't, love, oh. and I, I
1: know, but like I feel like you've talked about it a lot. But then we went back through the podcast, and, and I haven't not talked about it on the so pod. So it just, I've means clearly you've just bored me. Like, I've bored you
0: witless it. about it in real life. So it's it's a similar kind of thing. Um, a young uh, woman is growing up in South Korea. Her best friend's this young boy. When she's about twelve, her family migrates to Canada. She then obviously loses touch with her childhood friend. When they're around 20 or so they reconnect because Facebook comes along and Skype and they have a few kind of conversations. They become friends but they the boy never travels outside of South Korea. She's now living in New York as a writer. Then when they're in their 30s and she's married, he for the first time leaves South Korea and comes to visit. He doesn't stay with her, he's just in New York for a few days and they catch up over the course of that. And that is pretty much the sum total of the film. It's just, it's the best film I've seen in such a long time. I just, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's a bloody
1: flawless piece of work. And that's why I haven't watched it yet because you've been so... (laughs) Do you get that sometimes where somebody is so like, you have to watch this and then you think, I don't think I will. I just, uh, I think... (laughs) And the most annoying thing is... When I forget about all of this in two years and I stumble across it, I will ring you up and say, there is this incredible... <laughs> and, like, no judgment, because you've done that to me. Oh, many and times. Yeah, I,
0: know, I know. I know. It's weird, isn't it, Recommendations, that right? Because yeah. I've done the same where you've told me, mate, you are going to love this, or other friends do it, and then you read it or watch it or whatever it is, and you go, I absolutely
1: love this. Why did I take so long? I know. It's like the Americans. Remember, it took me about took me about three years to give way to your begging and pleading that I watched that and then I could do nothing else for, like, months. <laughs> but then and I, I get it. I do think, though, sometimes, like, especially with an author
0: like Murakami, of, of whom I'm now an authority, <laughs> um, <laughs> I think you can sometimes... Um, like Salman Rushdie springs to mind that I've never been able to get into any of his novels. And so people can say to you, this is amazing, I love it. And then sometimes I think with a really famous one like that, it can just not be your bag and you don't kind of connect with it for whatever reason. Or maybe if I read Norwegian Wood 10 years ago, you know, that happens as well where you're like, okay, I just didn't, that seemed weird, I didn't connect with it. Could have been that I was on holidays and so I had unbroken time to actually immerse in that world. Maybe if I was just reading five minutes before I fell asleep every night, it wouldn't land. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think sometimes on holiday too when you're reading a few things at once, because I like to, you know, just suit my mood if I've got a bit of time to read. I'll be like, <laughs> I'll read four at once. And it means that you give yourself a little bit of latitude and sometimes you pick up something you might not ordinarily do because you feel like, I'm so flush with time. I can just yeah. – I have no children here. I can just read another book if I want, you know. And that gives you a bit more um, a bit more options. Um I want to talk about two quick things that are are actually leading to somewhere I know you want to (laughs) go. And they are, just for a bit of a break, two pieces of video that I saw this week. Um, One was Glenn Maxwell's. um, Oh, yeah. So we were in a production meeting with um, our friend Chris and producer who was talking about um, this innings by Glenn Maxwell. And we hadn't, and I'd heard Jeremy talking about it as well. And I hadn't seen it and neither had you, but the way that they were talking about it um, made it sound so compelling that I then went and watched oh, it. Oh, great, So I've not watched it yet. So Okay, well, look, like, so essentially um, Australian batsman, um, Australia in all sorts of trouble, um, and he's at the crease and he gets horrendous leg cramps because it's really hot. He's been out there for ages and... You can the pain in his face is Ugh. incredibly, just hard to look at, um, and he can't run like he can't run. So he's basically got to stand at the crease and just ding it for a six every time. Right, oh. and he made 200 runs, and he's like like I can't remember the stats: 14 sixes and 13 fours or something. It was just like unbelievable. And then in between overs, he would like lie down on the ground, <sighs> and the physio would come oh. out and work on him. It just it was. Do they let him have water and stuff? Oh, yeah, you're allowed to have water, but I've been like it wasn't super. Just, like, I no, know. no, just to send someone out with a broom to beat him up, like just to like. No, I'm sorry, you can't have water. I'm, I'm just, like. I'm just reminded
0: <laughs> of it. I'm going like, are they allowed to have water and stuff? It reminds me yet again of the utter fraud that I committed when I started that interview with Shane Warne by going, Warney, we're here at the MCG, and
1: I can't help but recall that time you took your 700th wicket.
0: I didn't even know that they're allowed to drink water out there. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And what about how everybody who's ever met you watching that interview, which was actually like your interview with Shane Warne was in two parts over two nights because it was so good. I mean, I, like anybody else who's ever breathed the same airspace as you, knows that you know nothing about cricket. <laughs> so um, so when you said, and I think we all remember, I'm like, oh! <laughs> and when that went to air, your phone, I know, lit up with people just going, Oh! <laughs> It it lit up. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, you'll be able to talk knowledgeably about Glenn Maxwell and his leg cramps. So
0: does he... See, this is how little I know is the whole time you were telling that I was thinking, now, is the guy's name Jim Maxwell? And I'm like, no, it's not Jim Maxwell. It's Glenn Maxwell. He was not in a position to be batting. So did did he then get out or what was the... (laughs) (laughs) You said he batted, he got 200. Then what happened?
1: I can't actually... I mean, I was so... Hang on. No, no, they he won. won. Oh, they, they won. won? Yeah. Oh. He, got him, he got him over the, like... I mean, they came back from... Because of this heroic effort, <laughs> it came back from, you know, horror to triumph. I mean, it's, you the know... The person who's The gonna, ultimate
0: Aussie battler. The person who's going to hear this podcast and go, thank God everyone now knows what I was dealing with, is going to be former executive Justin. producer of 7.30, Justin Stevens, who every time there was a sports interview he'd go, can we just sit down please and go through this detail? Oh my God, you've, gotta,
1: you've <laughs> got to tell the Justin Langer story.
0: I've told that on the pod. Oh, have you? Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, come on, just just give it a quick oh, like, just reboot now. We, I mean, he this wants is again. actually... Appalling.
0: I forget. I forget what was happening, but something was happening in cricket,
1: and something was happening in cricket. Well, it wasn't Warney's 700th wicket because you were all over that. <laughs>
0: and so, Justin came in and he goes, "Okay, I've landed Justin Langer, but he can only do it in 10 minutes. Are you going to be all right with that?" And I went, "Absolutely, no problem." And he walked out of the room, and I Googled who is Justin Langer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and the most fraudulent thing is that she did a perfectly good job of it. And, like, this is a weird thing about journalism is oh. you lose your shame. You're just oh. like, okay, I've got five minutes to go from knowing nothing to knowing enough to just interview this oh. dude. Like, no, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I know.
0: It's, it's, no, it's horrific. terrible.
1: And I don't think you even cracked a sweat. You're just like, mm-hmm. Yeah, great, no yeah, worries. Yeah, I'm on it. <laughs> um, and I, I think... I mean, it was a terrific interview, but, like, the worst thing that happened really was when you retired as 7.30 host, Uh -uh. Justin Langer sent a lovely video message to your farewell, (laughs) thanking you for your ongoing interest (laughs) in cricket. (laughs) Um, Do you know... We went through our
0: contacts lists the other day for something we're doing and I have got a, an alarming number of cricketers' contacts, actually. It's weird. I am very connected to the cricket world. I don't know how that has happened, but I am. I've got everyone's number. It's weird.
1: I'm not going to okay. lie. Oh, I'm just gonna, like, <laughs> I don't know where to, what to do with that, but if I'm ever organising a certain kind of party, I will I, like, definitely... <laughs> Hit you up. Um, I pray that Justin Langer is not a chatter. No. (laughs) I feel like that Venn diagram is pretty, (laughs) like, it's going to insulate you. Um, So, the other thing that I saw, which was just a little clip from um, News Breakfast on the ABC this week, was when Imogen Crump was doing, I think, the News with Papers. Um, She's a journo. And they were in a discussion about um, uh, the Middle East. And she's bowled up a particularly curly one. That's a cricketing term. I <laughs> um, and she just starts talking and then she says, listen, I could keep just blathering on like this, but I think it's best if I just disclose that I'm having a massive menopausal hot flush right now <laughs> and I just can't think straight. And so I'm just going to wait for a second until this is over. And it was... And Lisa Miller handled it so
0: beautifully. Oh, she was, kind of just went, oh, I'm so glad that you were just honest about that. Good on you. Yeah, and,
1: and then it just, it didn't even become a lengthy discussion because she's just like, well, this happens. You can't control it, you know, and um, and then Michael Rowland's kind of like, are well, you know, take a break? And then she's like, uh, mate, it's over. Like, it, it's not <laughs> like, I mean... I'm good to go. Thank you very much. You and could so, tell you could yeah.
0: tell that something was wrong when she started speaking. You could see something was rattling her and that she was kind of not making sense. So, it was kind of good that she just called yeah. it. Yeah.
1: It was so – it was just – actually, it was just super charming. you was. And also, yeah. she just – I don't know. This is like such a shallow remark. She was wearing the greatest top. She looked amazing. <laughs> no, no, no. She just looked – she looked fantastic. And then she just was – you felt like you were getting every single bit of that person's brain right then. And like she's super smart, like she knew exactly what she was talking about on what she was there to be talking about. But she also was just like swiftly and concisely disclosed what was happening and, you know, and then was back to business. I don't know, I just I just thought it was really I I really enjoyed it is a terrible thing to say because she obviously was a bit like, well, I'm not thrilled that that happened. It but was very
0: human. Yeah. Like when Nate actually on News Breakfast disclosed that he was having anxiety attacks because he had one in the middle of the show that he couldn't kind of come back from. Um, And it's just, I think a lot of people, I'm sure when you're the person in the centre of it, you feel like, oh, this is horrendous. But actually everyone just finds it like, oh, that's just, that's like me
1: or it's very relatable. Yeah, and also know. menopause is all one of those things that, doesn't like is just mammothly under discussed even though yeah. so many women go through it and um it reminds me that reminds me that Kaz Cook's new book on menopause is just such a cool piece of work. Like, Gaz Cook is a sneaky wench. Um, she she just like, because everyone's like, oh, she's that funny cartoonist lady, and she is very funny. But geez, she writes useful books. She, she does, really does. Yeah. And I mean, I read the baby one when I was pregnant, the pregnancy one. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Knocked up. Is that what? I can't. What's no, called? Knocked oh, up. Up the duff. Up the duff. Yeah. Up the duff. Yeah. Yeah. Up the duff sorry. Knocked yeah. up. God, that's probably something else. <laughs> S- sorry, whoever wrote knocked up. Um, <laughs> And a special shout out to the author of Bun in the Oven as well. Anyway, I've only just started reading it, but it's, you know, it's already so funny and just dry and crackling with humour, but also really good info. A chatter recommended to me a show on SBS On Demand called
0: The Change, um, which is about a woman who's menopausal, who, it's a drama, it's it's a comedy, it's a British comedy, and she's kind of sick of her husband, sick of her kids middle-aged, she decide, she's she been keeping an exercise book since the start of a marriage where she's been writing down all of the amount of labour that she's done that <laughs> has gone unnoticed. And so, and then she puts the book in the cupboard and it's just full of, like, exercise books. And so it's like, you know, emptied the bins, five minutes, you know, did the washing, blah, blah, blah. And then she finally just, she puts this entry in this day, it's her birthday and she's cleaning up the kitchen and putting the garbage bags out on her own 50th birthday. And then she just goes fuck it and she just <laughs> walks out and she goes and lives in a caravan alone in the middle of a forest in this weird little town and this show goes on from there. It's 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 a funny, it's a quirky, strange little show but it was kind of enjoyable. The, the best bit was the fuck it bit at the start where literally any woman watching it just was like, I just want to do that so badly. <laughs> Um, can I I just want to before we run out of time talk about something that I wanted to spend a little bit of time on um, not too much this podcast that I started listening to
1: oh you're back on podcast you, you've been on a podcast drought yeah oh. I
0: don't listen to that many podcasts um, at the moment it's called The Whistleblowers it's its an ABC podcast I'm not mentioning it for that reason um, it's done by background briefing and it, a woman who I used to work with at Late Line was working on it and mentioned it to me and I said oh yeah I'll give it a listen not kind of thinking, you know, I'd get hooked on it. Oh, my God, I'm completely hooked on it. So, it's called The Whistleblowers. What it is, it does is it takes... A famous story that was able to be uncovered because someone was a whistleblower. Oh, that's a good concept. Yeah, and then it goes and interviews in depth the person who was the whistleblower. So it's not the key protagonists in the story. It's the person that kind of, you know, alerted authorities to it. So they're all stories you would have heard of. The first one is a woman who worked in the electoral office of a guy called Milton Orkopoulos, who was a politician who turned out to be a pedophile. One of them is a nurse who worked at Bundaberg Hospital when, I don't know if anyone remembers the story, Dr. Death, Jayant Patel, and this nurse who blew the whistle on that. Um, The union official who blew the whistle on Kathy Jackson. And so what's really interesting is it's fascinating psychological study Because whistleblowers themselves have often kind of unique personalities in that there's certain things that drives people or gives them the courage to go against the tide. And often systems like to protect themselves even if there is wrongdoing in the system. And so the person who chooses to blow the whistle, the thing that was common to all these people's stories is that they found themselves kind of ostracised by their peers even though they were doing the right thing or to a degree ostracised by their peers and that it was hard to actually get action taken and that all of them ultimately paid kind of a significant cost but it was the balance between can I live with not saying anything or you know What's what's the kind of consequences of saying something? And so, yeah, the one that I listened to most recently was the Bundaberg Hospital one. The nurse's name's Tony Hoffman, who was this... My God, she just... She kept going and going and going, trying to raise this guy. You know, people are coming in and they're being left, you know, wounded, maimed, dead... Um, and so, and she just was trying every possible path, and no one wanted to listen. And then she ended up going to the local MP, and then she ended up going to Hedley Thomas, the journalist at The Australian. Anyway, it's a very interesting psychological kind of study, and it gives you this um, tangential thing to these, as I say, very famous stories, and this element to it that you haven't really heard before.
1: But there's often such a common element in whistleblowers, isn't there, too? Because, like, what you say about systems protecting themselves is very true and sometimes whistleblowers are people who have already been excluded from that system to the extent that they um, they don't value it anymore or they see it for what it is um, and so they have an a- added impetus to speak out which then gives the system license to say well this is a disgruntled you know former employee or this person as a
0: journo then you also have to be very careful that you're not getting a disgruntled former employee so you have to kind of really check is what they're saying does it does it kind of bear out so it's it's there's a lot of complexities around it anyway it's just been riveting I'm kind of dying to
1: hear if anyone could excuse me I'm (laughs) 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 she's actually serious about that by the way (laughs) time you were at my house for dinner and I was talking oh. about that show The Rehearsal yeah. and it was on like Binge or some aid streaming yep. platform that you didn't have and so we we're talking about it and she's like uh-huh uh-huh that sounds really interesting um it is a really interesting show The Rehearsal fabulous piece of television and then excuse she's like, myself she's Rapidly. like made her excuses she's like anyway I better go um I'm off I'm like oh it's not even eight <laughs> thirty. like what are you and then confirmed that Take she went straight to her friend's house who's got a binge subscription <laughs> and texted on the way, I'm coming around to your house, I don't know what you're doing, but like, uh, can I just borrow your television? And I'm like, I've got a binge subscription. Like, you could have just watched it in my living room, but no.
0: <laughs> As Crab said of my friend, wow, most out of a booty call ever. <laughs> Literally did want to just watch some television.
1: <laughs> Netflix without chills. <laughs> um... Also, um, another book that I've read recently, because it's only just come out, and I actually did an event with Julia Baird last week in Sydney, is her new book, Bright Shining. And um, God, it's a useful book, you know? Like, at the moment, everything is so awful, right? News is awful. There are giant, insoluble problems that you just sort of pick up the newspaper or read about and think, oh God, everything seems so grim. And in her Julia Betty sort of way, she's written a book about grace and about um, acts of moral courage and moral beauty that are inspirational on a human level. And it's such a gentle and observant book. It's also very funny and because Julia always draws information from historical anecdotes and bits she's picked up. There is a chapter on Napoleon's penis. And I'm just like, <laughs> how does that fit in to a book that's about grace and reconciliation and generosity and forgiveness? I'm not sure, but there is some Napoleon <laughs> peen in there. So That, reads, that reads like a
0: dare that one of her mates, you know, over a drunken night was like, a dare you to get Napoleon's peen into your book about I- grace.
1: I always love kind of thinking, are you on a dare? And like, I recently have been looking for just no reason, but um, because somebody in my family is a patron of these products, uh, the Lynx range of uh, deodorants.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: There's one that's called Old Skateboard and Cookies. And I'm like, Are you serious? That's yeah. what it's called. Uh huh. And then there's one called like Wasabi and. I don't know, shoe leather or something. Like, it's just... Oh. And I'm like, you people are joking. Like, there is a very stoned person in the product <laughs> development department <laughs> of Lynx who's just going, got away with it! My
0: friend, got with it. My friend in Brizzy, who used to be a teacher in a boys-only high school, said to me she is just permanently destroyed by the after-lunch stench of
1: B.O. and Lynx Africa. <laughs> Oh, my people don't mess around with Africa. They go for the more, you know, avant-garde.
0: Can I just raise, I know we're out of time, but can I just raise one final thing before we go? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) For a second I thought you were going to say no because your face was like... No, no, I I'd really rather leave, this if going? that's all right.
1: Like, you know, you've been prompted by links to raise <laughs> new
0: no, no. things. So, my children are out the back and they have been begging me to talk on the podcast about a TV show called Young Sheldon. Now, I'm saying this like as if they're listening out the back eagerly going, Mum, please mention Young no, Sheldon. they're on screens they're watching their earphones on, on they YouTube. Yep. They couldn't give a toss what I'm talking about out here. Um, but do, I really, do anyone else's kids watch Young Sheldon?
1: You oh, watch oh, it. Okay. watch Young
0: Sheldon. Okay, good. All right. I need some assistance here. Um, so, my kids are absolutely – they love it. So, that's – it's obviously a novelty for them to get to watch TV with me every night because I'm home now every night. And so, that's our thing that we watch. And so, we're up to – not the new season that just dropped, season five. And so, we have watched every episode of Young Sheldon and we watch it every night of the week, basically. So, um, do you enjoy it?
1: Well, it's kind – of Okay, so Young Sheldon is... Do you enjoy it? Adult watchers of Young Sheldon? Yeah. Okay, it's got solid support. It reminds me of a show
0: that my ex-husband and I, and I can't remember the name of it, we used to call it The Christian Show. This is a good story. (laughs) Does does anyone know the show I mean, The Christian Show? (laughs) Seventh Heaven! Yes! (laughs) Seventh Heaven. It reminds me of Seventh Heaven. Okay, so... It's just never heard of it. Is there a Christian network that I've, <laughs> no, I don't no, 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 subscribe no. to? It was Justin Timberlake's wife, just to tie it back to Britney Spears. Wow. Who was in Seventh Heaven, Jessica Biel. Okay, so Young Sheldon, is it's kind of like a spin off of the Big Bang Theory. And so the dude who, which I've never watched, the dude who's the. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, person who was offended by that down the front. <laughs> <laughs> Sheldon Cooper, who must, <laughs> must be, I assume, the lead in the Big Bang Theory, it's young... She- <laughs> it's, it's. Is this like saying I've watched Jodie Love's Chachi but never watched Happy Days?
1: <laughs> I think it might be, love, yeah.
0: <laughs> OK, OK, good. They refer to this person called The Fonz, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, young Sheldon is grown-up Big Bang Theory dudes' childhood. Um, it kind of reminds me a bit of the Wonder Years. It's sort of like oh, the crowd doesn't like that. Mm. Mm.
1: Do they not? Do you not think it's like the Wonder Years? No, no. I think there was just a deep moan of recognition oh, okay. for the Wonder Years. I think
0: it's kind of like a contained episodic thing in which nothing ever really major happens. But it's kind of very inoffensive. The thing that kind of baffles me as to why my kids like it so much is because it seems extremely different to when I see them watching YouTube and they're watching a gamer play games and talking about playing games. It's, it's it's far more like what the kind of content I watched as a child. which So it baffles me, oh, I thought that kids weren't into this kind of stuff now. So I guess that's what I'm... Baffled by. This is the most old man
1: yelling at clouds thing (laughs) that I've
0: ever heard you say. Can somebody somebody (laughs) just yell out what's the appeal of it? The plotting. It's so innocent. innocent. Yeah. Okay. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's what. I've met your children,
1: and that doesn't appeal to them. Like. (laughs)
0: We all hate the mum. She's the, the main Christian character and we all find her extremely annoying. Probably tells you a lot about how I roll in my household. <laughs> anyway, um, kids, if you're listening out the back, and I know you're not, young Sheldon has now been mentioned on the podcast <laughs>
1: <laughs> and scene. <laughs> yeah, but you've been on Bluey so this is really well, nothing. True. <laughs> um I think I might close with the thing that I learned about you this week. Oh god. When we were um recording a podcast that was an experimental thing like just because we were we we're playing around with some ideas about, you know, seeking stuff. moral advice and stuff. And um we were talking about whether we like having people to come and stay at our houses. You know, that that awkward sort of code about what you can do in someone else's house and what you can't. And so we had a conversation about how we deal with people staying in our houses and blah, blah, blah. And Sales said to me, do you like having people coming to stay? And I said, well, I do, but then we've, we've got one spare room, but it's also an office and it's got a sofa bed in it that I don't, like to put people on because I don't think it's very comfortable, it was not my choice. Uh, it's quite hard oh. to tuck sheets in and stuff. Right? Something's
0: just clicked in my brain about this, and it's to do with me and Jeremy being the same person. Yes. Anyway. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. They, yes, they are the same person. <laughs> and um, so I'm like, I always feel awkward because, you know, I wouldn't. I don't want to put people there, but then otherwise I've got to shift my kids around, and then if it's my parents, they're like, absolutely not. We'll sleep in the garden, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> so. Seriously, oh, like, totally. my parents will sleep in the garden. Dad used um, to bring
0: his own sleeping bag. Right. So, so I
1: wouldn't have to wash sheets. Yeah. God, God bless yeah. him. And, and, know, and like my parents would do, like, yeah. oh, we don't need two towels. We can just share one. I'm like, the towels are there already. <laughs> you don't, like, I don't, I'm not buying more towels. <laughs> They're there. Go crazy. Have five. Like, <laughs> oh, it's a waste. Oh God. Um, I've actually seen my mother do, oh, I don't need that bigger plate like, it's wasteful <laughs> to put that toast on a larger plate because a smaller plate is more economical. I'm like, wow. it's the plates. I've, I'm <laughs> going to one-up you there. Oh, can I've you? Seen,
0: I've put leftovers in a Tupperware thing and my mother's come and taken them out of that and put it into a smaller Tupperware thing.
1: Because <laughs> <it's>. <laughs> so anyway, I've gone through this, like, hand-wringing about, blah, blah, blah. And Sales says, well, you say what you said.
0: I said, I deliberately got a sofa bed for my spare room because I know it's uncomfortable and therefore... <laughs> <laughs> ..it will discourage people from staying. And I put a aforementioned sofa bed in a room that's very crowded because there was a piano in it. So when you unfold the sofa bed, there's no room to put your... Your suitcase has to go in the lounge. There's no, you have no space in the room. She has booby-trapped her
1: house. <laughs> to stop people staying there. (laughs) I'm just like, what?
0: Except for you, Sabra, my friend in the audience, if you want to come and stay, I will get rid of a child for the night. It's fine.
1: (laughs) And then we're talking about, I mean, it's like the scales have fallen from my eyes. like, this must be an actual business, right? Like, there must be... And yeah. then we were talking about, like... The, the Ikea
0: range. For if you want an uncomfortable sofa, guess. you can buy the Ikea for
1: cough. <laughs> 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 Hit me. <laughs> oh, you've nailed it again. <laughs> the for <corf.
0: laughs> the, the Ikea go range. <laughs> With an umlaut over the O. <laughs>
1: The sadistic detail of the fact that you would cram a sofa bed into a room that has a grand piano in it. It's an upright. It's an upright. How big do you
0: think my house is? That I would have a room with a grand piano (laughs) and a sofa bed and that that is the spare room. (laughs)
1: Do you know what? I mean, the thing is, I've been in that room many times, never been invited to stay, oddly enough. Um, but such is, like, the, the horror of my, like, realisation about your character that in my mind the piano has grown to be enormous. Well, the cello's in there now too. <laughs> <so. laughs> oh, oh,
0: we have to end these because I'm in pain. From laughing so hard. (laughs) Oh, God. I'm in
1: worse pain than Jim slash (laughs) Glenn (laughs) Maxwell. Well, let's not go back through all the lowlights of this discussion. All right. So we're going to go out. She'll be signing books after she briefly, you know, doubles over in pain. Worse than Glenn Maxwell when (laughs) booting, you know, not booting, going the tonk 200 runs and um, we will be uh, signing and I will be giving Lee's home address to anybody who (laughs) asks who'd like to stay. Thank you so much Thank you (laughs) (laughs) Hobart. You've been awesome.